The following message is by Pastor Steve Clark of the Evangelical Free Church of Salt Lake City. More information is available at our website, www.slcevfree.org. Father, in Jesus' name we pray. We start there right now as a way of acknowledging that it is His name that allows us to come to You. It is His name that we want exalted. It is in line with His will that we lift up requests to You, acknowledging that only that which is within line in line with His will, will be heard in an answered way. So in Jesus' name we pray. Asking You to make Your name known throughout the nations. Asking You to bring Your kingdom here to this earth, to this place, to our hearts. Asking You to do Your will. And acknowledging that sometimes, Lord, more often than we realize, we set ourselves contrary to that. Even praying contrary to that. So, Lord, we confess that sometimes we are about the business of building another kingdom. And we ask you to, for Jesus' sake and in Jesus' name, correct that in us. Correct that tendency in us. And powerfully, wonderfully bring about your will, your kingdom, and the hallowing of your name. Would you meet our needs in ways and in times that will cause your name to be lifted up and your kingdom to come? We deliver us from temptation and the evil one. Will you forgive us in ways and in times that will cause your name and your kingdom to be lifted up? Thank you that you are a God who hears. That you are a God who is deeply committed, has promised, and will carry it out. You are deeply committed to having all of the earth covered with your glory as the waters cover the sea. Justice and righteousness will be the foundation of your throne, and we will experience it to our great joy and for your glory. Thank you for that promise. Thank you for your character that is committed to fulfilling it. And thank you for correction. And Lord, if this passage today is particularly applicable to certain individuals in certain situations, Lord, make that extremely clear to them, I ask. where it applies to all of us consistently, help us to sit under it properly, wisely understanding ourselves and our own tendencies, drawn to trust you in your promise-keeping goodness. We need your help with this, Lord, and so I ask you, pour out grace on us, your people here, build your church. In Jesus' name I ask that. Amen. Turn our attention this morning to 2 Samuel chapter 14, where we, were, where we will encounter 
all out of some of the things that we saw last week in chapter 13. Chapter 13 is a terrible chapter. Awful stuff there. Sexual assault and murder, as well as a host of other sins, both visible ones and, and sins of the heart that, of course, give birth to those visible sins. And it is also explicit and central to the chapter that it is unavoidable, it draws our attention to it, and should cause us to mourn over it. And the doubly tragic point of it all was that all of this wickedness is, even in the house of David, a son of David assaults a daughter of David, and David, the king, we are reminded in case we'd forgotten, the one whom God appointed to be the protector of the people, the deliverer of the people, the one who brings in peace and righteousness and justice. David, when he heard about it, did nothing. So it's left to another son of David, Absalom, to take matters into his own hands. And he does so, and he plots revenge, and two years later, in cold blood, murders the criminal. All of it evil, and all of it in the house of David. And if we can't find righteousness and justice there, we can't find it anywhere on earth. That was one of the main points last week, that that righteousness and justice that we seek and that we need is not found here, not anywhere, not in the house of the best king ever, nowhere. Even David's house is full of wickedness. And that tragedy, ironically, the presence of, of all of that evil in David's house, ironically, there's where the little sliver of hope comes in. The, the second thing that we considered last week. It's the minor point of the passage, but it is there. There is hope in the passage in seeing God keeping his word to do what he said he would do. After Uriah and Bathsheba, he said he would bring trouble of like sort to David's house, and he did it. Consequence for sin. So we see God who says and then does, keeps his word, and then also keeps his word to not throw David away, but to keep working with the line of David. We see God keeping his word and keeping his word even when it's hard. We find there cause to trust him to keep his word all the way to the end, to bring from David the king of righteousness and justice, the one who will be what we need, Jesus. So there is hope in the passage, but it's the, it's the minor point. The dominant one is a, is a point of devastation. The chapter ended with Absalom, the murderer. Having left the land, he fled away from the land and went to the Gentile grandfather on his mother's side and went to, went to hide out there in exile out of the land. We'll pick it up there. He's gone. He's been there for three years. We come to chapter 14. I'm going to read all the way through the chapter and then pass back through it to make sure that we understand the details before making a couple of overarching observations. 2 Samuel, chapter 14, beginning in verse 1. Now Joab, the son of Zariah, knew that the king's heart went out to Absalom. And Joab sent to Tekoa and brought from there a wise woman and said to her, Pretend to be a mourner, and put on mourning garments. Do not anoint yourself with oil, but behave like a woman who has been mourning many days for the dead. Go to the king and speak thus to him. So Joab put the words in her mouth. When the woman of Tekoa came to the king, she fell on her face to the ground and paid homage and said, Save me, O king. And the king said to her, What is your trouble? 
And she answered, Alas, I am a widow. My husband is dead. And your servant had two sons, and they quarreled with one with another in the field, and there was no one to separate them, and one struck the other and killed him. And now the whole clan has risen against your servant, and they say, Give up the man who struck his brother, that we may put him to death for the life of his brother whom he killed. And so they would destroy the heir also. Thus they would quench my coal that is left and leave to my husband neither name nor remnant on the face of the earth. Then the king said to the woman, Go to your house and I will give orders concerning you. And the woman of Tekoa said to the king, On me be the guilt, my lord the king, and on my father's house. Let the king in his throne be guiltless. And the king said, If anyone does anything to you, says anything to you, bring him to me and he shall never touch you again. Then she said, Please let the king invoke the Lord your God, that the avenger of blood kill no more, and my son be not destroyed. And he said, As the Lord lives, not one hair of your son shall fall to the ground. And then the woman said, Please let your servant speak a word to my lord the king. And he said, Speak. And the woman said, Why then have you planned such a thing against the people of God? For in giving this decision, the king convicts himself, inasmuch as the king does not bring his banished one home again. We must all die. We are like water spilled on the ground, which cannot be gathered up again. But God will not take away life, and he devises means so that the banished one will not remain an outcast. Now, I have come to say this to my lord the king, because the people have made me afraid, and your servant thought, I will speak to the king. It may be that the king will perform the request of his servant. For the king will hear and deliver his servant from the hand of the man who would destroy me and my son together from the heritage of God. And your servant thought, The word of my lord the king will set me at rest. For my lord the king is like the angel of God to discern good and evil. The Lord your God be with you. Then the king answered the woman, Do not hide anything from me that I ask of you. The woman said, Let my lord the king speak. And the king said, Is the hand of Joab with you in all this? The woman answered and said, As surely as you live, my lord the king, one cannot turn to the right hand or to the left from anything that my lord the king has said. It was your servant Joab who commanded me. It was he who put all these words in the mouth of your servant. In order to change the course of things, your servant Joab did this. My Lord has wisdom like the wisdom of the angel of God to know all things that are on the earth. Then the king said to Joab, Behold now, I grant this. Go, bring back the young man Absalom. And Joab fell on his face to the ground and paid homage and blessed the king. And Joab said, Today your servant knows that I have found favor in your sight, my lord the king, and that the king has granted the request of his servant. So Joab arose and went to Geshur and brought Absalom to Jerusalem. And the king said, Let him dwell apart in his own house. He is not to come into my presence. So Absalom lived apart in his own house and did not come into the king's presence. Now, in all Israel, there was no one so much to be praised for his handsome appearance as Absalom. From the sole of his foot to the crown of his head, there was no blemish in him. And when he cut the hair of his head, for at the end of every year he used to cut it, when it was heavy on him he cut it, he weighed the hair of his head 200 shekels by the king's weight. 
They were born to Absalom, three sons and one daughter, whose name was Tamar. She was a beautiful woman. So Absalom lived two full years in Jerusalem without coming into the king's presence. Then Absalom sent for Joab to send him to the king, but Joab would not come to him. And he sent a second time, but Joab would not come. Then he said to his servants, See, Joab's field is next to mine, and he has barley there. Go, set it on fire. So Absalom's servant set the field on fire, and then Joab arose and went to Absalom at his house and said to him, Why have your servants set my field on fire? Absalom answered Joab, Behold, I sent word to you. Come here that I may send you to the king to ask, Why have I come from Geshur? It would be better for me to be still, to be there still. Now, therefore, let me go into the presence of the king, and if there is guilt in me, let him put me to death. Then Joab went to the king and told him, and he summoned Absalom. So he came to the king and bowed himself on his face to the ground before the king, and the king kissed Absalom. This chapter has an interesting storyline to it that it's easy to wonder, what does this have to do with anything? And it is, in some ways, it's positioned here to prepare us for some things. But as we look more closely at it, we'll see that it itself carries its own message very very subtly in the, the main characters and how they interact with David and what they're after. It basically has, has two halves. One, the first section dealing with the schemes of Joab, using the wise woman from Tekoa. Those two characters dominate the first section. And then the second section turns to the schemes of Absalom. Before we go into the specifics, we need to understand something about the the larger context because it is important for understanding what's going on. We've seen before throughout 2 Samuel that it is very common for material to be grouped together by theme rather than by chronology, rather than in order of time. We've seen it a number of times when David came to the throne first and then after David received the covenant from the Lord, we saw after that the the things that pertain to God fulfilling the covenant. And here again, we're seeing in this section, 11 and 12 is David and the sin of Bathsheba and Uriah and God's pronouncement of consequence. And what follows right after it is the description of the consequences. And so it seems that this is... Right immediately following on David's sin with Uriah and Bathsheba. But when we look a little more broadly at a number of different details, comparing the ages of, of the various princes and, and other dates that help us set, set up the timeline and the sequencing, this is actually at the very end of David's reign. Chapters 13 and 14 take seven years, two years before Absalom kills Amnon, three years that he's in exile, and then two years before he comes into David's presence. And that seven years is the last seven years of David's reign. Grouped here because it immediately follows on the pronouncement of consequence. There are other things that will come up yet in 2 Samuel, but they aren't after. This is, this is at the end. It's important for helping us understand what's going on with Joab here. Joab is, is about something. He wants Absalom welcomed back. Clearly he does. 
But he doesn't like Absalom at all. Clearly, he doesn't. He doesn't want to give Absalom a time of day. So why? what is on his mind here? The most reasonable answer, particularly in light of verse 13, when the woman, who's speaking Absalom's words, when the woman comes around to accusing David, tying this to David, she says, why have you plotted a thing just like this against the people of God? She's seeing her made-up story, a son killed and a son, now another son killed, dead to me. No heritage, no heir. That's the kind of thing, David, that you were doing to the people of God. Joab put those words in her mouth. Joab has a view of the people of God needing an heir, needing a heritage carried on. And seeing that it's right here at the end of David's reign, what's on Joab's mind? Royal succession. David's in his late 60s by now, and he realizes, Joab realizes that the fire's gone out. Chapter 13 and 14, we see David used by his son Amnon, tricked by Absalom, now tricked by Joab, and tricked by Absalom again. And his initiative, he's kind of on the back foot. Joab looks at David and says, this is coming to an end here. And the firstborn, Amnon, is dead. The secondborn, born to Abigail, wife of Nabal, he's never mentioned, probably went back to Nabal's estate. And the thirdborn, Absalom, in Joab's mind, the crown prince, is in exile an apparent enemy of the king. And this is a recipe for civil war. Joab is highly concerned for the people of Israel, for, the, for the, this kingdom, and what's going to happen when this king passes on. There's weakness in the middle. So he wants to fix that. And he determines that while in verse 1 he's looking at David and sees David kind of incapacitated by a mix of anger and, and sorrow over this whole situation, he's, he's stuck. David's stuck here. Joab discerns, now's a time, for whatever reason, I, I see that I can now work something here. And he goes and gets a wise woman from Tekoa. Probably not meaning that she's just intelligent. It's probably some sort of a, a semi-official position. She's a wise woman. People go to her for advice and for help. Gets her, brings her, sets her up, and sends her out to be another Nathan to David. Remember Nathan from chapter 12. Nathan comes and tells David a story and affects change in David. Well, that's what she's going to be now, another Nathan, but in quite a different way. She comes and she tells him a story that unlike Nathan's story, which was designed to alert David to what was righteous and lead him to repentance. This story is designed to cover over what is righteous and to move David away from repentance. She tells him a story that apparently lines up. Two brothers, just like Amnon and Absalom, wouldn't you know? But this story that she tells is not about premeditated murder. It's different, importantly different. It appears to be about an accidental heat of the moment. Maybe manslaughter might fit there. Perhaps even there's a hint of self-defense. We don't know because there was nobody there to see it. 
There was no one present to, to break them apart. And, and they quarreled and they fought and one killed the other. There's uncertainty as to what exactly happened there. And there's also in her story a, a little hint of perhaps some greed on the part of the clan. They're going to kill the heir and she won't have anything because they are going to get everything. The rest of her relatives, are, it's going to pass into their hands. So there's some ulterior motive here perhaps in the story that she lays out there in front of David. It seems that there's something similar here in her story, to these two boys that fight and kill one another, but it's actually quite different. But it works. It engages David's emotion. He comes over to her side, and, and then she seals the deal with half-truths about God misapplied. David, you wise man, you... She tells him that he's able to discern. He has the wisdom like the wisdom of angels. You wise men, you you feel it right to spare my son. Isn't God the type of God who spares the life of people? God doesn't take life. God devises ways to bring back the outcast. That's the kind of God that we serve. Anyway, back to the reason that I came. Um, it was about my son, and I'm thankful that you were able to give me Protection from those mean people that want to kill him. It's very, she slides right in. I'm talking about something that my, my real predicament over here, and that reminds me of your predicament. Thank you for solving my predicament. Very wise. Very smooth. She butters him up very well. Perhaps a little too much because he does detect Joab in it. But he's still so effectively won over that even though he knows he's been won over, he still does what Joab wanted. And he brings back Absalom free from justice. Forbids him to come into his presence. He doesn't reconcile with him either. And he puts him in kind of an, in his own house away from him for two more years, which starts to set Absalom's gears in motion if they weren't already turning. Absalom comes home and he begins to move towards the throne. And we know that because of how he's introduced to us. There's almost this pattern throughout First and Second Samuel of when the author starts talking about handsome men who are of stature and attractive and have a head and then have a house, this guy's becoming king. It's almost a pattern here. Saul, David's brother, David, and now him. He's moving towards the throne. But he knows he has to get there through David's acceptance. And to get to David, I have to get to Joab. And Joab won't talk to me. I'll set his field on fire. And he does, and it works. He comes into David's presence through Joab. Either execute me or exonerate me. One of the two. And he knows five years on, David's not going to kill him. So David brings him in and kisses him and everything's hunky-dory. That's the end of the passage. And I grant it is easy to say, what does this have to do with anything? But the key is around, you see I've titled this providential scheming. The key is around those two words, scheming and providence. We're going to look at the first word, scheming, first. 
Here's the first observation from this passage. Unbelief drives human scheming that seeks to secure a kingdom for ourselves. Unbelief drives human scheming as it seeks to secure a kingdom for ourselves. Beware of schemes, plots, plans, actions, efforts, exertions, negative word on that, schemes, that you will encounter out there and in here that are seeking to secure something. They're seeking to secure a kingdom that is a place of a, a realm of rule, a place of security and protection, a life that is controlled and ordered. Beware of that, and most importantly, beware of where that comes from. It comes from unbelief. Unbelief drives human scheming as it seeks a kingdom. That's what we see going on in this chapter in a couple different ways. We see the thoughtful hatching and executing of plans, people thinking, seeing what they need, what they want, and trying to figure out how to get it. That's what Joab's doing. Joab sees, I, I look at the lay of the land here, I look at the king's age, I see the, his attitude towards his son Absalom, and I know what needs to happen to secure the kingdom here is this guy has to come home, here's how I will get it. And the woman then knows she has to appeal to him, so she speaks in certain ways. Absalom does the same thing. Figuring out how to get Job's attention, how to get in with David. All of it, people working situations carefully, thoughtfully, effectively to reach their goal to secure a kingdom for themselves. Now, I'm using the word, the, the indefinite article, a. A kingdom. Undoubtedly, these folks would have used the definite article, the, to secure the kingdom. It's pretty easy to see that in Absalom. His, his power play against Joab is all about, I want to be king of the kingdom. I want to sit on the throne. I want to rule over this place, the kingdom of Israel. That's it's easy to see there. Easy to spot that. It's very common among us. It's not the main point I want to focus on this morning because it's not, not so hard to detect that one. What's harder to notice is the very same issue at work in Joab and often in us. We have to stop and think about something here. Think about what Joab is after and draw a line over to yourself in this. It's tricky. Absalom's easy. Absalom's about me and my power. Stepping over everybody to get there. Joab's more tricky. Because on the surface of it, he is after what he says is good for the people of God. He's concerned about others. He's concerned about what this, this nation, this group, what would be good for them, what would be right for them. That's what he's worried about. That's what he's chasing after. 
It seems good and right. However, there's a subtle change in V and A. Joab, and I would suggest us often, we pursue what we call the kingdom, but it is really just a kingdom. A kingdom of our own imaginations and of our own timing and of our own details. Joab looks out over the people, decides what he needs, and will set righteousness and justice aside to get it. And will adopt sinful means to get it. There's the clue. What will he skip? What will he set aside to get to what he's decided he needs? That's what we have to watch for in, in ourselves. And we have to look also and notice, where does this come from? It comes from unbelief. When Absalom seeks the throne, Absalom says, in essence, I hear God's declaration about who should be king, David. And I hear God's declaration about who should be king after him, Solomon. And I say to that, no, that is not good, that is not right. Absalom is a very clear rejection of what God says. And Joab likewise also rejects what God says and does not believe that this kingdom and these people can be secured by right means, by righteousness and justice, by letting God be God and letting God be in charge of the situation. Instead, he takes things into his own hands and makes it happen. It is the very same unbelief dressed up in different clothes. This is what we have to watch out for in ourselves, in others out there, but in ourselves also. You may find it when you find this sentence. This must be because it is right and good. Ask that sentence. This must be because it is right and good. Right there at that sentence, you may find this attitude. This unbelief that drives a scheming to bring in a kingdom. I say may. Because I have to acknowledge something else. We have to acknowledge something else here. We have to act. We are always people who live in a world and we have to make decisions and we have to take initiative and step out and live. And the best way to do that is is to do what you think is good and right. So there is no sure formula, this must happen because it is right and good. That, That might be true. But that's the question you have to ask to find, is this situation right here where I am scheming to bring in my own kingdom? How can you detect 
if this is sinful scheming to bring in your own kingdom or if it's right acting. We'll start by looking at the end goal. What are you after? And is it contrary to the revealed will of God? Joab can answer that question. I'm after a criminal brought home apart from justice. Yes, that's apart from the revealed will of God. There then you found scheming to set up a kingdom. Even though you have decided this must happen because it's good and right, it's not good and right. It's contrary to the revealed will of God. That should seem obvious to us. I'm here, I'm here to tell you, often I deal with, with people that set that aside and instead are moved or persuaded by something we could probably best call sentimentality. That's the woman of Tekoa's angle. It's Joab's angle on David. We have an issue of righteousness and justice, but let's cover that over with some half-truths that will pull on your heartstrings here. God is a God who never takes life. God is a God who designs a way for the outcasts to come home. That's true. If, if, and if you're an outcast need to come home, you need to know that that's true. She just misapplied it. She's taken a, a half-truth and put it in a different context to cover something over. And very often, men and women, very often in the church, you've bumped into it too, I bump into it, a common setting aside of, of what is right and just, an overlooking of, a skipping of what is right and just, to pursue something that is, that is oh so attractive and, and feels so good. How many times, to be a little more specific, how many times have I interacted with somebody who is I put it as a as a woman, a woman invited to sensing some relational need, finding some of that met in to make it extremely clear a person who is not a Christian. Here I have a relational need, and get, did not God make me as a relational person? And I have, I have a strong longing to, to be with, with a man, and, and I, I, feel, I, I don't feel like I'm, I'm content being single. I, I'm called, I think, to marriage. And God puts that in me. And God does not, God want to please us and, and give us good things. And is not marriage called a good thing? He'll probably become a Christian. Right away, you have just found scheming to secure a kingdom. Because that is contrary to the revealed will of God. I, I, I feel embarrassed saying this. It is so common. I could name off several handfuls of people that do that very thing. We could change subjects. 
Marriages and divorce. Half-truths used to cover up something that is clearly wrong. When you say, this must be because it is good and right, this relationship must happen because it, it feels a need that I, that I sense and I can identify the appropriateness of that need being met. It is good and right, therefore this must happen. If this is contrary to the revealed will of God, you have just found scheming, trying to build a kingdom, and most importantly I put before you that comes from unbelief. The unbelief that does not believe God can meet this need legitimately. God can fill me legitimately. No, He cannot. So therefore, I must have this contrary to what He has said. I wish I was making something up. It is so common. So common. So we have to watch that in our own minds we do not get led astray into thinking I'm pursuing something right and good, something whole and full for myself or for others. It seems that Job is concerned about the people of God. I have had arguments with people defending the Christian woman or Christian man's right to be with non-Christian so-and-so. They defended and accused me of being harsh. I wish I was making this up. This is so common. Often it comes in areas that pull on our heartstrings. The, the emotionalism of, of this story that she makes up is not accidental because it, it pulls on something in us. And it is very difficult to say, that looks so good and attractive, but in faithfulness and in belief in God to do what is, what is right according to what He said, I'll say no to that. That's very difficult and very rare in the church. So first, if you're looking for in yourself for yourself or in yourself for others or in other people's conversation, if you're looking for scheming that's seeking to establish a kingdom, the first thing you do is say, is what they're after wrong? That's the first place. But that doesn't answer all the questions because sometimes it's hard to know if the end goal really is right or wrong. Sometimes it's hard to know what the end goal really is. Sometimes it's hard to know if the end goal is right or wrong right now. What do you do then? In that case, keeping in mind this comes from unbelief, you look for unbelief in the attitude and in the demeanor in which this planning, scheming is pursued. The approach to it the person is taking are we, as we're saying, this must be because it is good and right and, and necessary and desirable. As I come to the this must be, do I come to it with an attitude that reflects belief? A humility before God to do what is good and right. The posture is, am I holding it like this, open-handed, or am I grasping it and driving it forward It, it is, it is very hard for me to, 
to read this and think about this without looking at a whole list of issues in our church right now. Some, some are well aware of this. Some maybe this is news. I don't mean to be turning this into an information time. But our, our church and the school that's attached to it, right at the moment, we are facing big questions about what's the future of the school, its shape and role? What's the location of the school and the church? Who will be the head of the school? Who will be the head of the youth ministry? We are, we are having discussions conversations about these issues right now all the time. Those are big things, and it is obvious that as soon as somebody enters into that, you develop an opinion. This must be, or this person must be, or this must not be, because it is good and right and necessary. That that runs to our minds immediately. And in this situation, you have no idea It's very hard to know with certainty. God's Word does not say with certainty. We should be located there. This person should be the head of the youth ministry. That's not there. So how do you detect scheming that's trying to secure a kingdom? Look for unbelief in attitude. Unbelief in demeanor. You're approaching the whole thing like this, open-handed, prayerfully, willing to be wrong, willing to be corrected, willing to lose the vote, with a Christ-like attitude, or rather with an attitude of contention and striving and grasping. I cannot see where that would be good and right. I cannot see it. And so therefore I will hold on to this one because if it goes there, that'll be wrong. So this one must be. That's unbelief. Unbelief revealed by the attitude. Trust and faith in God to bring in His kingdom, to hallow His name, to do His will on earth. It's the attitude that, that, that reveals belief. So we don't want to be like Joab. We don't want to be like, like Absalom and pursue a kingdom with our own scheming and our own ideas. To avoid that, we look at unbelief. Seeing in what we're after and our attitude as we're chasing it. So obviously, if you work against unbelief, belief. Belief is where we have to rest. Belief in God who brings His kingdom. Who does His will. Who will hallow His name everywhere. It all comes back. It all comes back in, in every avenue in which you are living your life. And you have to live. You have to make decisions. You have to say this or that. Somebody at some point is going to have to vote on this person should be the head of school and this person shouldn't. We're going to make decisions in all of these things. And the big question is, are those decisions made from a posture of belief or from unbelief? We must arrive at belief. That, 
that pushes towards you. You must live and walk and act and think and plan. Negatively put, scheme. Positively, plan from belief. Well, how in the world can you become a believer? Now, in asking that question, obviously there, there's, there's an initial answer. You become a believer by trusting in Christ's death on the cross and you are saved. Yes. At the moment, though, I'm speaking to Christians and I ask you, Christian, how do you become a believer? And the answer is not hold things like this. That's backwards. You hold things like this when you are a believer. You seek after God's goals, not to become a believer, but because you are believing in faith. How do you become a believer? How do you fight against that unbelief that drives such scheming? And it leads me to say, I must secure my own kingdom or else I will fall. Where does that come from? Do you know? How does your heart get turned away from unbelief to belief? How? You must know this answer. It is at the bottom level of living. You must. Do you know it? You do know it. I I hope you know it. It is not different than what we talk about all the time. Because it's not different than what the Bible talks about all the time. The Bible is given to you, Christian, to grow in you belief. Not just to tell you facts. To grow in you belief. You become a believer, a Christian who is a believer By what you do and by what God does. By what you do. As you look at God promising and acting, promising and acting, promising and acting, promising and acting, over and over and over again. All to carry out what He said He would do for you and in you to deliver you from evil, to deliver you into goodness, to deliver you into the presence of His very nature to enjoy Him forever. He said He would do it, He does it. Said He would do it, does it. Said He would do it, does it. As you look at that, you see a track record develop. And looking back, you see the faithfulness of God. That's what you do. And then what God does is He reworks your heart to cause you to actually, with that evidence stuck in there, to be different. That's God's part. You can't make yourself that. But you feed it. You feed it by looking at the faithfulness of God again and again and again and again and again. And you do not stop You take the Word of God, which reveals the character of God, put it in there, and as He then causes it to dwell in you richly, 
He renews you. You have a part to play. He has a part to play. And He must do that. But you must do your part. You must pursue Him and look and look and look. It's where belief comes from. And belief is then what gives you this. Your will be done. Your kingdom come here in my life. You must see that. And this passage shows, us, shows it to us one more time. I'll be very brief with the second point. We look and see God say and do. Say and do. Say He will deliver us and deliver. Say He will bring us into good and bring us into good. And this passage gives us more fuel for the fire. Here's the second observation. God providentially reigns over all schemes to bring in His kingdom. God providentially reigns over all schemes to bring in His kingdom. Providence is one of the main themes that we've seen developed throughout First and Second Samuel. It's all over the place. And it's here again. God, through the ordinary things that people and weather and animals and whatnot do, God carrying out His intended purpose. Time and again we see that. You read this chapter and you say, Joab schemed and he got it. He won. Absalom's home, Absalom schemes after the throne, and and my goodness, David served it up to him on a platter. He brought him back and did not execute justice, brought him back into favor, which is exactly what he needs in short order to, to mount the coup that he mounts. Ah! I wonder if Solomon thought, Ah! I'm a dead man. Here he comes, he brought him home, he didn't do anything to him. Job number one for King Absalom is going to be to kill me. I'm a dead man. It all failed. They schemed to establish a kingdom and they won. By now, we should be reading this and realizing that the game's not over. That It's still God's turn. He has yet to, to move. Because this is exactly what Joab wanted and exactly what Absalom wanted and exactly what God wanted. This is how Absalom gets eliminated. This is how Solomon gets the throne. What problems would it have been for Solomon if Absalom had remained in exile? Surely somebody would have thought he should be king. That's what would have led to civil war. But he's brought back and then cut down. And Solomon sat on the throne. Perfect. God gives Joab exactly what he wants and Absalom exactly what he wants to get exactly what he wants. This should fuel belief in you. 
seeing this should fuel belief in you. God reigns over every scheme that you will ever encounter and ever fail under. And you will fall under the schemes of the powerful and the wise and the influential. They will get you. They will pull one over. They will work you. Beneath the providence of God who brings in His kingdom for you, certainly trust Him. Time and time and time again, He shows us when we ask, why do the wicked prosper? He says, just wait a second, it's still my turn. So, you have great reason to be a believer, Christian. And again, I'm not talking about being a Christian. A believer as a Christian. One who believes that God holds me and God will establish His kingdom. Not, not my kingdom. It might not be how I think it should be. But He will establish His kingdom. Indeed. Here again, He shows you the twisting and turning path that comes out right where He wants it to. God providentially controls all such scheming, all worldly wisdom, all plots and plans and endeavors that humanity uses to advance its own kingdoms. He is over it all to bring in His kingdom to cause His glory to cover the earth as the waters cover the sea. That will happen. Believe. Pursue what he says to pursue. Holding it like this. Believe. Let me pray. Lord, for some of us here, I think probably... For some of us, we face great temptation ourselves to work, to work a situation and make come about what we think must be. And others of us here are suffering under those who have succeeded at that very thing. For them, Lord, give them very present help in their time of need. Assure them that you still hold them in your hand and have yet to move. Assure them and comfort them, Lord. And for others of us here, Lord, perhaps most, would you, would you put a, a little caution in front of us? We put a, a reminder that will alert our minds when we find ourselves walking contrary to your expressed will or or tightening our fists around our own goals. Would you put a reminder in front of us that your kingdom is the kingdom that must come by your means. Build up in us faith as we see your faithfulness. Lord, do, do this work in your church among your people, please. 
I'm thankful for your goodness, and I'm thankful how you repeatedly show that to us. You could be good and silent, but you are good and vocal over and over again. Thank you, Lord. Build your church. Cause us to act in faith. Cause your name to be known. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for listening to this message by Pastor Steve Clark of the Evangelical Free Church of Salt Lake City in Salt Lake City, Utah. Feel free to make copies of this message to give to others, but please do not charge for these copies or alter the content in any way without permission. We invite you to visit our website at www.slcebfree.org or call us directly at area code 801-943-0091. Our mailing address is Evangelical Free Church of Salt Lake City, 6515 South Lion Lane, Salt Lake City, Utah, 84121.